Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're dazzled by holograms and day trippers and trying to stay strong as we mourn the fictional but very consequential loss of one of our own in Excalibur 75. Hello, I must be going. Excalibur number 75 was originally published in March 1995, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Randy Elliott, Pat Gary, and Chris Mathis on colors, Pat Rousseau on letters and Susan Gaffney on editing. Welcome back to another jam-packed week of Excalibur chat. There is a lot to cover in this comic where we lose a complicated, powerful redhead future girlfriend of Kurt Wagner in favor of an equally complicated, slightly less powerful blonde past girlfriend of Kurt Wagner. And if you're upset with me discussing women solely in relation to men, get used to it because there's a lot of that in this comic book. But who am I? I am Dr. Anna Papard. I often talk about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture in academic spots and geeky ones and ones that are a little bit of both, like at the Twitter account Sequential scholars. I'm not totally sure what Andrew and I will be working on when this episode drops, but I'm sure it's something awesome. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, as well as a person who has a painting on her wall of Kurt and Amanda Septon kissing. Miss um, Septon and I have a complicated relationship, but I'm <laughs> sure it will make for some good convos. I am joined as always by Mav. Please remind us of your heroic deeds. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me by my n- new name of, of, of Americanic. Uh, uh, that's a thing that people <laughs> will be calling me from now on for for all time. That's just gonna yeah. happen. We're not gonna just drop this like suddenly and like in like a few issues because it's really stupid. <laughs> really, you really sound stupid. like a a super heroic like patriotic mechanic. I like it. I can picture. I know, it. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> I was thinking about that when I came up with that yesterday. Um, but, but yeah, um. <laughs> I am a teaching professor of digital narrative, interactive design, and popular culture at the University of Pittsburgh, where I teach things about like you know comic books and and movies and and um, and sex and gender and class and race inside. And you know, there's a lot 
have all of that in this. That's for, mm-hmm. this is the book with a you know like I've been I've been struggling these last few episodes with you know trying to say nice stuff. This is a book that has some content. There's there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of content here, and I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. As we were talking a little bit before the pod, we're like, there's a lot of stuff in this comic. It's not boring. We've got a lot. This of is stuff absolutely to talk a about. comic. There's. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, please revive your resume. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. Uh, you can find me on faculty at St. Charles University and online as the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars. This week, those responsibilities have me writing tweets about the Wolfman Perez run on Teen Titans and lectures on Mariko and Jillian Tamaki's This One Summer, which has been delightful because I love both those things. And I can now officially announce that my one book on Chris Claremont is officially in press and that I have been contracted to write another next year. So lots of scholarship forthcoming on a writer best known for creating Amanda Sefton, who I do actually really like. So this should be a Me fun too. topic of discussion. Yes, we'll get to it. Uh, it's not that I don't. Anyway, whatever. We'll get to Amanda. <laughs> I've got a painting on her on, her, on my wall. Of course mm-hmm. I like her. Okay. Uh, we are jo- And congratulations on the book, Andrew. I've already said congratulations to you separately. So I don't want to seem like I'm making that slide pass. But yeah, I'm just so excited for the book, Andrew. Seriously, it's just amazing. So we are joined this week by a guest who's very excited to talk about Rachel and Brian and gender. And we're very excited to talk about all of those things with her. The pod is gaga to welcome Daisy Letanier. Welcome, Daisy. Well, thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure. I've been a, a fan of the pod since uh, for about a year now. So that's great to be here. Aww, that's so nice. Um, I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Daisy Letourneur is a lifelong X-Men reader. She is a French trans woman who's been writing on gender and masculinities for several years now. She's released a French language book on men called One Nene Pas Mec, One Is Not a Man, a play on a famous Simone de Beauvoir quote. And she is a trans feminist activist with the Tout de Femme collective. As all of our loyal listeners know by now, we like to do comics origin stories with new guests and I'd of course love to hear yours, Daisy. You already said you're a lifelong X-Men reader, so tell me about when you discovered X-Men. When did you discover these comics or comics in general? Tell us your comics origin story. Well, as a French kid, comics has have always been there for me. Uh, I can't even remember not being aware of the Smurfs and Asterix and things mm. like that. I uh, also uh, have a distinct memory of my um, big brother who was a, a teen when I was uh, born, uh, introducing me to Marvel Comics, which was a little bit more niche at the time uh, in France. He showed me his comics where I learned about uh, X-Men, Spider-Man, Iron Man before I even could uh, read actually (laughs) and and so i looked at the pictures and tried to uh, piece some kind of story together back then i decided that my favorite x-men was cyclops because i had glasses and he did too Uh, (laughs) actually (laughs) i still love him uh, now even if i don't wear glasses anymore because i realized he's autistic and i am too and uh, well my my brother moved away uh, when i was uh, maybe 5 or 6 and took his comics collection with him so I only got back in uh, to super superior comics uh, in the early 90s when my uh, other brother and i started to have enough pocket money for them uh, we found some old uh, bound up collections uh, at bargain prices and one of them that i read again and again was it contained a dozen issues of the clement uh, Romin- Romita X-Men, 
where Rachel Rach was introduced. Uh, I was completely fascinated by her, even though her story didn't end uh, for me until many years later, because I only had this this one collection, which had like uh, her introduction and her fighting uh, Celine and uh, a little bit of stuff like that. I didn't even get to see her become Phoenix. Then I got into the more... Uh, early uh, Jim Lee era and I was uh, really into the grim and gritty 90s stuff as a 10 yeah. year old kid but <laughs> and Excalibur didn't really do it for me it was like this strange odd uh, book in the X-Men family which was also bound up in um, a French magazine with uh, other comics I didn't care about, like uh, West Coast Avengers and Captain America. Okay. And back then, I only read the uh, things with uh, X in the title, so I really didn't want to read that. <laughs> uh, I, I only discovered uh, Excalibur uh, quite recently. Oh, okay. Well, let me ask you about that a little bit. Like you've re rediscovered Rachel in the pages of Excalibur in her in her Phoenix identity. Like what has been interesting you about Excalibur as you've been rediscovering it? Well, I um, I got back into um, into X Men uh, a couple of years ago when I stumbled onto um, a New Mutants collection at the library, and uh, that led me to read the, the whole of the Claremont run. And suddenly, I, I really got uh, into Rachel's story a, a lot more. And uh, when uh, Excalibur started, I was really really excited because I'm a little bit older, and I realize now that I like Alan Davis' way of drawing a lot more than I do um, the Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and all these guys um, and uh, I realized that uh, now as an adult I can understand uh, all the subtext uh, that really uh, flew over me when I was a kid you know there's a, and especially as a, as a queer woman I realized uh, there's a lot of uh, specific scenes in the in X Men where I can totally identify with you know getting uh, the fan family team and uh, getting together and saying terrible news on TV about people hating you and stuff like that. And uh, Excalibur is of course uh, a less relatable in some ways, but the the sexual farce uh, elements is really uh, really refreshing. Uh, I really don't think I could have gotten that as a 12-year-old. It was really not made for me back then. But now I see it as something so fresh and, and funny and weird. And comics today can uh, tell uh, this story a lot more explicitly, I think. Uh, but they, they rarely do um, do it with such uh, an inventive way and such, uh, such wonderful qualities. I'm just... Uh, I've just been uh, loving it and uh, I actually uh, started in my Claremont run uh, read uh, I got to Excalibur a few um, months after you guys started your podcast so now oh, I've been okay. reading along uh, for uh, for over a year now. Oh yeah, I, like we've talked about this before but so many people have gotten, you know, back into X-Men during the pandemic and stuff and been doing that whole read through of the Claremont run and yeah, it's so cool to talk to people about it. I like that. I don't know, it's just such a cool sort of community thing that so many of us have been doing that. It's been wonderful finding out that, you know, I was uh, when I was a kid I, I didn't really uh, see uh, X-Men as anything other than a comic book about awesome people 
people and uh, it spoke to me because I think it speaks to everyone who ever felt uh, rejected and felt as an outsider but reading it as an as an adult who's uh, queer and out and understands a lot more things about myself now and I realized that oh maybe there were a lot of other reasons why uh, <laughs> X-Men and all that uh, spoke to me so much. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge reason I like to go back to stuff that fascinated me as a kid. You know, you're like, why did this appeal to me? Like, what can this tell me about my adult self that I was so interested in this one story dynamic or this one character or whatever? And it's kind of this like excavating your identity that can happen when you re revisit those type of texts. Yeah, and I've not, I didn't even mention the kinky stuff. <laughs> yeah. we're always happy to talk about that on the podcast um but um i want to hear your thoughts about this issue in particular and sort of your your thoughts about revisiting the extreme art and the grim and gritty 90s and its effect on excalibur and to talk a little bit more specifically about rachel and some of the gender stuff and stuff we have here so let's do our issue summary and then i'll i'll ask for your first impressions of this one our salute to rachel and our goodbye to rachel which we're very sad about but we will try to give her a fitting send-off so i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we day trip with you anytime but for now let's focus on surviving an issue summary excalibur number 75 opens in the wake of scott and jean's wedding rachel is very excited about the fact a different person who's obviously not her might be born if jean and scott have a baby which will somehow make her more real like rory campbell i don't pretend to understand her but rachel's joy is short-lived after nearly dropping a plane on rory and, you know, good honor. She's chewed out by Megan in her true form for not bringing Brian back. Suddenly, alarms go off in the Muir Island base, alerting the team of an intruder. This intruder is actually an invited guest of Kurt Wagner's, none other than his foster sister slash girlfriend slash flight attendant slash sorceress slash part-time X-Man, Amanda Sefton. Rachel is upset that Kurt felt he needed backup. Amanda insists she's simply there to offer a different view on the Megan situation. Rachel storms out and hears Brian call out to her from across the time stream. She and Brian again wrestle for control of her body but this time Kitty sees the whole thing. Kitty says Rachel should have told them what was going on, that maybe if they knew sooner they could have fixed it. Then we enter an extended flashback of Rachel in her dystopian future, playing at a scene where Ahab taunted them with an open door. Rachel never went through the door, saying she knew she didn't deserve freedom, but with Kitty by her side, she finally tries it. We jump to Rachel meeting the rest of the team outside, where she tells Amanda they must try to help Brian. Megan and Rachel join hands and Amanda conjures a spell to open up the time stream. The gate opens and Brian is found. In the process, Rory notices that he resembles Ahab, you think? <laughs> Rachel reaches out to Brian and they exchange places in the time stream. The gate closes and in Rachel's place stands Brian Braddock. Or is it? Megan turns to greet her lover, but he's not quite himself. The guy who should be Brian announces that he is no longer Captain Britain. He asks to be called Britannic. Gonna love talking about that one. Okay, so <laughs> Daisy, I'm coming to you first for your first impressions. How are you feeling about reading this particular issue? What, if anything, are you particularly eager to talk about? My first impression was that it's it's really bad. It's uh, it's really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it just felt like so so such a betrayal of uh, the Clement and Davis run and a lot of stuff. But it's also really strange. You know, I've got the feeling reading it like it's like a like an horror story. Like maybe you know everyone is telling Rachel that Rachel that she should die, that she should yeah. uh, mm -hmm. switch places with Brian, and you know it's. 
all of those people are friends and suddenly it's very midsummer-like. Like everyone is telling her, no, no, Rachel, you need to accept your destiny and you need to go into the time stream, whatever that means, and switch places <laughs> with Brian. And then Megan is turned into like this creepy figure with like, usher my dark lord Brian into this world. Yes. Uh, it's really... <laughs> Uh, really terrible and and in the end Rachel, Rachel accepts her destiny which I feel is very out of character for her she's the one who's actually always runs away from her destiny always chooses to de- do things her own way and uh, then uh, suddenly the, the, the end of her story is uh, it's that it's her in totally surrendering uh, and sw- switching her place with a man I find that really uh, <sighs> really sad another thing i really uh, that irritated me is that scott lobdell has this point in this career as this uh, trick of quote important uh, issues where he will have a an outside character narrating oh, so he yeah. did that with the uh, uncanny issue where iliana died and uh, that was narrated by uh, jubilee who didn't really know iliana and uh, that issue was actually uh, really poignant it was really touching uh, but jubilee is a character with personality and with a voice and uh, rory campbell definitely is not so <laughs> <laughs> it's there's a feeling with uh, scott lobdell uh, issues of Excalibur that uh, he was writing them really quick a lot of the time and so this, even this conceit of having him uh, narrating the issue doesn't really work because sometimes he's there and he's telling stuff about uh, where he is but then there are whole uh, sequences where he's not here and the narration just uh, drops so it's really uh, not not a well uh, thought through um, trick. Yeah, I you're picking up on a lot of things that really made me angry about this comic book. Oh, I don't know, like the thing that you're picking up on about everybody is telling Rachel that it's her duty to basically die is, um, yep. uh, as the kids say, problematic um, in terms of... <laughs> I just, I can only imagine if you were reading this with certain tendencies and kind of the narrative that's built up of like uh, heroic suicide and all of her friends are convincing her that this is the right thing. It is creepy. It is objectively really, really creepy. I'm sure it wasn't like the intent to kind of link it to a real world context in that way, but boy, it does not read good. (laughs) It really does not read good. I want to come back to a bunch of the stuff that you mentioned mentioned uh, Daisy, definitely including the narration, which was something I had a big issue with as well. But I'll come to you, Andrew, Matt, for some first impressions first. Uh, Andrew, how are you feeling? I agree with everything you and Daisy have said. Um, this is, I mean, Lobdell has been assassinating Ray's character for a while now. This is his finishing move and it's Oof. perfectly executed. Uh, and just to add to what you were saying, Anna, like it's not just the idea of Rachel sacrificing herself for a man. It's the idea uh, that, that Megan brings into it of Rachel should sacrifice herself because Brian has a family or at least the potential for a family. Yeah, that's mega fucked up in so many ways, especially for a character (laughs) whose journey is all about appreciating the value of her own life uh, and not seeing herself as disposable as she did when she brought herself to spiral. Ah, 
it, it's it's rough it, it, it's, and, it's really really rough and boy like the element of that like megan's got a family because she has a heterosexual like fiance whereas rachel quote unquote only has a queer found family and the one family is obviously so much better and more important and more valuable and worthy of saving than the other one. Yeah. Oh boy <laughs> oh boy <laughs> Again, everything this character stood for is just being killed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mav, go ahead. Um, like I said in my intro, I I don't hate this. It's not good. Um, but but I, but I think it's uh, this book is so much content. It is what I think of as peak Lubdell on the series. Um, Andrew just said <laughs> that this that it is a perfectly executed character assassination. And yeah, pretty much. But or I'm going to try to be fair to it because I don't love this. But <laughs> more so than anything else that we've done, especially these last three episodes, which I hated. I mean, I hate the episodes. I hated the I hated the issues. These last three issues I hated. And this feels like there's a lot of intentionality here. It feels like he is accomplishing what he is setting off to accomplish like he's written a he's written a real story a, co- a complete cohesive story that is not a copy of what alan davis was doing it's not even really a copy of what, of what claremont's doing it's peak labdell the fact that i don't like labdell because like he does things that i don't that i don't like is immaterial like it just feels like he's trying to come into his own and his own is a whole bunch of decisions that i disagree with <laughs> so so like so it, <laughs> so it, it's complex right it's complicated i I agree with everything Andrew and um, and Daisy and and Anna said about how how Rachel is treated in particular, but all the other characters. I don't recognize this version of Megan, but it feels consistent with who Labdell wants her to be. I don't recognize this version of Kitty, but it feels consistent with who Labdell wants her to be. Right? Like it's these are different characters than I want them to be, but that's so 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 I'm weird. It's it's a weird backhanded compliment from me in that like yeah you're doing that thing that i hate really well <laughs> you know what i mean and and that's kind of where i'm at with it we've been talking a lot about the 90s excess of this book right uh, now and, and and that's kind of what it's it what it is this does not feel it doesn't feel like mistakes so that's my that's the best i can say about it it's like this is like you are succeeding at what you want yeah yeah i mean i can definitely see how the issue as much as i totally disagree with like basically all the choices it yeah. is trying to give rachel a send-off i mean we could have just written her out of the book off panel as happened to brian and that's not what's happening and like Farron this is like Kylan a rachel and, issue yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i mean so it's, yeah it's again it's it, it's weird right like it, i i hesitate to use the same criticism that we've been using because there is clear writing here like mm-hmm. these are choices <laughs> it's such a low bar though no i know but i mean it's just you know but it clears them i mean i'm i'm, I'm yeah. you know as a professional i mean as as a professional literary critic this is like what you have to do right like i can't just say oh this is bad because it sucks it it's not i i just disagree with it if you yeah. are looking for you know what i wish excalibur had more x-men connections and it was just part of this you know this kick-ass extreme family then you know you get that here and you don't get it as like an afterthought you get it yeah yeah but except that we're like losing our member of the summers clan in favor of britannic which is an odd choice yeah. in that context. Yeah. but <laughs> yeah, this is not something i want but, yeah. but it's not what i asked for but as someone who was reading these books back then and 
and there were a lot of people who were asking for this. Yeah, no. And that's, yeah, yeah. And, I think as a as yeah. a twelve year old who was really into executioner song and the yeah. fatal instructions, I would have really liked this more than uh, the Alan Davis stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we're just not the audience because you know we're. I don't want to. I was going to be really mean. We're just say we're, we're too smarter. smarter. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to get letters about that. I don't like, want to ever claim to be Matt smart. Said it. Yeah, it's not. It's well, we're more sophisticated, mature. It's this is not a grown up. We're book not. We're, we're not young. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, young. It's, it's, this is not. This is not a grown up book. It's, it's a book yeah. for. This is trying to be a book for twelve year olds, like Daisy said. And yeah, I wasn't twelve anymore when this came out. Like I was a grown up and I'm a grown up now. And I, I, I think the world deserves books for 12 year olds. It's just uh, not everything needs to be for <laughs> I just, me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm just like, well, it's a book for 12 year olds. It's like about a woman committing a heroic suicide with a lot of flashbacks to a Holocaust. Yeah. So I mean, yes. Like, okay. well, and, and a clear reference, in a clear reference mm-hmm. to the Holocaust, like Kitty, mm-hmm. it, Kitty makes that connection for us, mm-hmm. but like it's a, it's a heroic sacrifice that we gender because we've been conditioned to. No. But this it, it's not a heroic of... sacrifice, though. It's not her choice. The way I, no, I no no I, I she's pressure. I agree. I I oh I absolutely agree. And, and I but I'm what I'm saying is this is um this is the kind of story that these books write when they're like oh this is you know you someone I must do this because I've got to save the other teammate. That's it's it's a move that I don't like when whenever it's made. But it just feels like you know. When Cerise gets written out of the book, it's just so much stupid. It's like you didn't he didn't think this through for more than two seconds. Right. He thought this yeah, yeah. through and he came to what I consider the wrong conclusion, but that's a personal preference based on my yeah. my morals and beliefs, not just sloppy writing. This is not sloppy, is what I'm saying. It's just yeah. I just disagree with it. And I, and I think that given where these last hmm, six months of books have been, I, I feel like we have to <laughs> – six months of books for them, not for us. I mean these last you know six issues or so. I feel like the work deserves us making that distinction. Yeah, yeah. I mean the distinction I would make is just that I do see how this book is trying to give Rachel a send-off. It's just the ways that it contextualizes why mm-hmm. she's valuable and you know the choices that get made and everything. Because, I mean, I, I want to talk with Daisy a little bit more about gender in the book. It's going to be my next question but um Mm -hmm. but just like in terms of like the framing of Rachel you know it opening with her being very heteronormative and feminized and talking about heteronormative unions and kissing Rory and then it all gets (laughs) I know it just it all gets framed that her value is that and so the Mm -hmm. tragedy of losing her is that she was going to have this heteronormative life ahead of her so there's just a lot of things like that that are yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that are like sort of woven into this where it's just like i i do understand the intent to give rachel a quote-unquote heroic send-off it's just mm-hmm. the terms of her heroism here are uh so broken upsetting yeah upsetting <laughs> yeah 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 and um i mean other things like fast forwarding for the rest of the series it's never going to feel like a loss to me at least like i know like i know what the next 50 issues are and there's no point in which i feel like megan has been moping about brian for 
issues now. That's not going to happen for Rachel. She's she's just, I mean, okay, spoilers for you. If you're expecting her to come back, she doesn't. This is it. Um, She comes back in 2000 and the book's canceled by then. So like this is, we're done. And it's never going to be the kind of thing where, you know, she'll be mentioned from time to time, but not in a way of, oh my God, I miss Ilyana. Oh my God, I miss Brian. Oh my God, I miss all the X-Men. Labdell doesn't care about her. So this is the most he's willing to give. And then by the time Ellis comes along, she's just been gone for too long so we're not going to have that kind of connection the way you you know if you've been reading this book for the last 74 issues you probably want it, it, it this is a new world so there's things like that where i consider it sloppy writing can i say one good thing okay sure. i love <laughs> lashley's artwork here i the, the, um as yeah, far as like a few pages in right yeah, I, I think Lashley has totally come into him, come into his own on this issue. And this feels like, hey, you're making I, I support what he's doing wholeheartedly through this. It's not is he my favorite artist? No, I mean, but he's but I actually think that he um, he has found his stride for this book with, with this issue. I agree that he's achieving what he sets out to achieve, yes. even if I don't care for it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, 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 it's getting not, better. Not, yes. Yeah, not going to be for everybody. But I but I feel like he's not cloning like he's not trying to draw an Alan Davis book. He is not trying to draw a Jim Lee book. He is not trying to draw a, a Rob Liefeld book. This is Lashley artwork. Ken, yep. You know, no, Ken I Lashley, agree with yeah, that. Ken Lashley artwork. I agree with that. Anyway, I want to come back to you, Daisy, and get your voice more on this. So let's talk a little bit more about Rachel and some of the issues with the portrayal here. You already brought up a lot of great points about it, but I do want to make sure that our episode is mostly focused on her today since it's her send off and it's going to be our last chance to talk about her. We've talked about trans readings of Rachel on the pod a few times before. Um, not that in depth. I and mean, when we've talked about some of the context of that, you know, her going to the body shop with Spiral and then kind of returning in Excalibur and we have this gap that creates a lot of interesting possibilities in addition to a lot of the queer coding of the character and sort of her anxiety about normalcy and a lot of these things that are woven into her and yeah I like I brought up on one of the previous episodes that won't be out yet unfortunately at the time that we're recording about this idea of her switching places with Brian and some of the imagery we have here of her body changing and sort of her fighting off this change in her body and I found that like potentially interesting you you don't necessarily have to agree with me but i just like yeah broadly speaking i was sort of interested if you had more thoughts about rachel and gender and the kind of narratives that we're getting here or just sort of with her in general because we've talked about a lot of different ways that we're thinking this is a betrayal of some of those possibilities of rachel but if you have more thoughts about it i'd love to hear them daisy yeah yeah i, I think there's a, a lot of way to, to read uh, rachel she's there's an open-ended uh, portrayal of her that was allowed by his fact that it was not just uh, possible to have a trans character in uh, at Marvel at the time. But I had uh, personally uh, an epiphany when I read uh, Uncanny 201, which is uh, the issue where Rachel, Rachel sees uh, Scott and Madeline's baby, and it's a boy. And I was like, oh, she was born a boy? Uh, obviously, uh, poor little Nathan uh, grew up to be Cable, but it would have been a lot more interested if he grew up to be racial instead uh, of Cable. But there's a, a ton of stuff that I feel can uh, really uh, make a, make me read her as trans. 
like she's a very private person she's very secret and she's got uh, obviously a lot of trauma and there's her whole uh, relationship to her parents she's like the the kid who transitioned and came back and now she can't talk to her parents she doesn't even tell scott for years that is uh is her father and then when uh when jean is back and uh, she realizes uh, that uh, rachel is her daughter she doesn't really embrace her it's a really torturous journey really complicated uh, relationship uh, that I found really interesting and then there's under stuff which sounds a lot like uh, survival sex work which is something a lot of trans people uh, have gone through it's a, and uh, as you said there's a thing about uh, disappearing into mojo world and coming back with a, a new body she she got a, a lot of she she's a lot more feminine and also a lot more confident and uh, I think that's a lot of things that helped me to identify with her and uh, find in her a lot of uh, things that I have gone through and uh, a lot of my friends have gone through. Obviously, I know that some people read her as an asexual uh, person or anyone can read uh, anything into her, but uh, that's my reading. And in that reading, uh, there's really... Um, uh, something interesting going on with uh, Brian being uh, like uh, you you could read it like a birth horror story like uh, an alien thing with Brian being a yeah. par- parasite inside her body demanding to come out uh, and uh, in that reading it's also uh, uh, the story is very pro-life you have to give up your life for Brian to be born but if you're reading Rachel as trans, you can uh, uh, see this scene as something like, oh, when she's all alone, suddenly uh, her dysphoria comes out and uh, she says there are these terrible images of uh, hyper-masculine body uh, reclaiming Rachel and uh, she's fighting dysphoria. Uh, she just doesn't want uh, anyone to know. She's putting up a, a facade when uh, when she's with people. I think it's really terrible. You, you would think that uh, Rachel Rachel is beyond that, that she, she's more confident now, that she, she really uh, should be um, at ease uh, in a woman identity. Uh, but then again, um, I should be beyond that too, and I'm really not. It's something you don't, <laughs> you, you struggle with uh, all of your life. So I don't know why not. You keep, I'm not saying that's something that uh, Scott Lobdell was uh, thinking about. But uh, that makes uh, the story uh, a bit more interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, I talked about this briefly, I think a couple of episodes ago, where we had a similar scene of kind of Brian's arms coming out of Rachel's body. And yeah, I had a very similar reading of it that just like the way that she focuses on her body too and her right to exist and you know she's so frantic you know in those moments which you know who wouldn't be someone else is trying to take over your body and your body is changing I mean you know that's a pretty I think anybody would probably be upset but at the same time just those specific images and some of the language that she uses in a couple of those scenes like no it's my body it's my body like get back and like yeah I did find that interesting for reasons that I don't think these writers intended but yeah within that really compelling reading of the character uh it can become interesting in a different way although still like oh does not make the conclusion of this comic better as you also pointed out um, but can, can I ask you a question about the way that Rachel is presented in this comic in terms of gender? Like, how did you feel about these opening scenes where, you know, she's wearing the like mauve dress, she's talking about Jean and Scott, 
did this sound like Rachel to you? Or did this sound like, how do I want to put this, an intentional reframing of the character? Like, what was your response to those initial scenes? I don't like it at all because uh, I think Rachel is all about a story is about coming back to the past to try for a future not to happen. So her parents marrying and eventually maybe her being born and all that is something that she would not want yeah, to happen. Yeah. And here she's just so happy for uh, everything going the way of days of future past yeah yeah that's super weird i hadn't even really thought about it in that context but that is super weird (laughs) oh yeah i don't know i mean yeah we talked about that before i just don't really understand like the excitement about being born thing but um (laughs) it creeps me out more (laughs) that she's excited about it like i actually understand the worry that she won't be born more than I understand the excitement that she will. And I I get how, as a writer, Labdell, and not just Labdell, because other people have done this too. As a writer, they're being conflated. But, like, the worry when she meets Nathan the first time is that, oh, my God, so do I not exist? Will I never exist? What am I? I get that that existential crisis, right? But for her, it's been years. She clearly did not blink out of existence, you know, until this issue, right? So, but that's for a different reason. So, like, if she's not worried about her lack of possibility and her her own personal annihilation, now she's just randomly invested in her parents fucking, and that's weird. Like, that's like that's like a weird <laughs> thing. There's no other there's no other way to read it, and it and it becomes creepy because like she's got no guarantee that that will be her. What if they have a baby and it's a girl and it's not you, right? It's like some little brunette girl. What do you well, yeah. do? Point, I right? just, I just don't understand. Like, but I mean, they already had a baby, so the timeline's already. I mean, it, it, if it the blink, of, yeah. everything if the flap of a butterfly's wings can change the entire course right. of history. Clearly, your parents having a different baby who's not you—that's a lot of change. Yes. And, <laughs> she is enough, and she is enough. And she is enough of a time traveler that she knows that, like, one conversation with Reed Richards fixes this, and she's done. And she knows that, and yet it doesn't matter. So, like, even her, like, what's supposed to be a poignant moment at the very end where she says kitty promise me you'll kiss me hello when i'm born right that's supposed to be beautiful and sweet and it's just like but you know it doesn't work that way and even if it did why would one day old you recognize this as a gesture that's meaning like literally everything about it is broken other than the fact that like it feels to the author like oh wow this is going to be a deep moment that's going to really resonate with everybody and it creates too many questions <laughs> so like that so that's where that's what i meant by like the intentionality like he did exactly what he thought like so much thought was clearly put into that it's just not the thought that i want and that's why it's it's one of those weird books where i feel like if you're into this you know i can't really fault you like i see why i see why that might be a moving moment to somebody but for me it it isn't did you want to jump in a minute ago andrew um i don't know i think matt's kind of covered it um all yeah I, i just think it's another point of contradiction in a book that's struggling with character consistency to the point that the letterer actually misspelled Kitty's name, spelled it pride, P-R-I-D-E, and they clearly put in these two little hatch marks to make it look like a Y. Yeah. Again, it's just... I agree with what Matt's saying. We have to measure Lovedell on his own terms. And this is kind of a potentially touching thing. But 
the power of comics for me is the continuity of the characters, right? The ability to tell their stories and evolve their stories. And I do think the writer has a responsibility there. And he is pooping the bed with regard to that, with regard to a really good character, as Daisy said, that a lot of people identify with and celebrate. And he's not just getting rid of her, which is a crime in itself, but he's unraveling her before he does that. And that's what makes me deeply frustrated. And again, I can't I can't just say it's Labdell doing his Labdell thing because... Nah, he's a comic writer. He, he he works with continuous characters and he's just choosing not to. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, also, um, Scott and Jean were clearly already fucking. Yeah! So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that makes a... Rachel just excited about uh, heterosexual marriage and the institution of marriage and mm-hmm. why she, she's a, a clearly queer-coded character. She would not be that invested in such an event she's also just not stupid like she because her 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 excitement on these first couple pages is oh my god oh my god they're getting married that means i might be born soon and i'm like that's not how babies work and you know that (laughs) (laughs) like like, they're the marriage part is not necessary or it's like (laughs) like, it's like she has this idea of marriage like she's a very young child who thinks marriage (laughs) right Secret pact that conjures a, a store brings yeah, the baby. Yeah, mommy and daddy love each other. They embrace in a special kind of hug. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, just so bizarre. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just so... There's a lot of stuff in this comic where, like, we have the bond between Kitty and Rachel that ostensibly liberates Rachel from the trauma because they exit the pens together through the door. And then we have Amanda and and Megan and Rachel kind of coming together to do this thing. And in a different comic, you know, we all know how much I rhapsodized about, you know, Excalibur uh, 66 and 67 about, you know, the queer feminist utopia of these women merging and coming together and everything and how much I love that. This is so similar in like bare bones ways and so different in execution and I was even struggling for like why I felt that way like partly it's the art again I I think Lashley's doing a thing and I think that it's consistent and it is what it is but this level of objectification within this ostensible queer feminist utopian moment like and when I say objectification I mean you know stereotypical male gaze heterosexual objectification in these moments that's giving me a little bit of pause this is a very different type of scene than like Kitty's mind like exploding in pixels and like Rachel falling through like the fluid pieces of her mind that's a very different scene than like these two hyper-objectified bodies sort of posed like Barbies as their heads collide. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's just a very different image because it is a kind of thing where you can question whose gaze and whose desires are being sort of articulated here when that's the visualization of the scene. So there's that. But But then there's there's also... symmetry to that too, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly as we're saying, like, yes, it should be a good moment where they come together and they do the thing, except it's not because Amanda and Kitty should be standing up for Rachel agency in life her literal ability to exist not ushering her towards her own suicide so having the hypersexualized images to me that's oddly consistent with lovedell it just further signals the problem with the story well yeah and i mean there's the thing with there's just the thing with megan too that daisy already pointed out that you know she becomes this creepy avatar of brian and it's explicitly love 
yeah it's explicitly said that in the dialogue like she does not have a personality except that she is like an anchor for brian and that is all that she is like the dialogue explicitly says that so like to have her conceptualized visually as a barbie doll here which is just that image where they're very still and like that's literally what it is they're doll like so yeah i mean that is sort of there at the level of visual and plot so in that way i'm like yeah i mean it's consistent but i mean that's where it's giving me pause right anyway map go ahead I was I was going to key in on something Anna said earlier and something that you've said a lot. Like you, you were talking about how it seems like an odd moment, the art, Lashley's art in the middle of this, you know, the, what you call the feminist utopia moment. But you've also repeatedly said, and I and I think I think this matters. You you said that you know as a woman in this era in particular, you find you find yourself like grasping at straws, whatever whatever scraps you're you're given to like give you something that you can identify with the comic. And I think that maybe what this is is it's not really there. Like you said, who is this for? And I'm like, well, it's for 12 year old boys. It's for 12 year old heterosexual cis boys. That's what it's for. The fact that there's anything feminist and women empowering empowering at all in that moment is maybe a happy accident because what this what this story is is a woman's love can draw you back throughout time so that you can be even more manly and masculine than you were like that's it, it is well, such yeah, a and, and and your other like female best friend will sacrifice her body to bring your heterosexual lover back from the dead right right it is <laughs> such a it is such this this book is like wish fulfillment for the Aryan 12 year old white boy that's what it is yeah. right <laughs> like and, and it's like the it's, we are that, like yeah. but i mean that's and i'm yeah, but yeah. I, I mean, i'm not i'm not even making fun of it i'm saying yeah, no. that's what it is and it's mm-hmm. it is embra- it's not ashamed of that it's embracing it the answer is like hey you know me the colonial the colonialist superhero i'm gonna be even more of that i'm going to be you know Britannic, you know, like like literally everything about it is <laughs> is this moment, and then we're like when our criticism is, yeah, but it's not queer enough, and I'm like, well, yeah, he's he's specifically rejecting that. I mean, no, he I is. Right. yeah, and and I don't, I think what he did, he did well. The fact that I don't, that I might not like it, that they might not be the choices I want, are are sort of immaterial because, like, the, the answer is he's just writing a book that I don't like. Like, like, and I don't know. How, I don't know how else to say that. And and I, so, like, so I go, oh, okay. There's, and I also know. To be fair, I know things that are coming down the line that I'm gonna that I'm gonna some I'm gonna like better, some I'm gonna like worse. And we just did these issues comparing these issues to this entire thing with with Blaze and Sinister and these last couple of issues. I just feel like this is night and day, much better crafted. Like the fact that I don't like it is a different issue. And you said it's a low bar. I'm like, yeah, it's a low bar, but it's what I have right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like this book is not going to be something that I enjoy for a few more issues. Now I do enjoy I I like Amanda stuff, and we'll get her get to her before we're done. But like I I like that Amanda's back. It's uh, I like that she's a different character. But like I don't you know I've never liked Brian in this book from the first issue, and this is even less of the parts that I do like about him. Right? Like I like yeah. the traumatic struggling hero, and now we're trying to say no we don't need this we need him to be superman and it's his version of superman it's so weird yeah i know i mean i, I just want to i, I want to come to daisy for some thoughts about sort of the the female bonds in this comic book yeah i mean i will say like on those two pages like i'm looking at pa- the the two pages that are them going into the time stream so there is the the one page which is sort of faces and brian's struggling face and you have mm-hmm. rachel and and amanda narrating that scene i think that one is a little bit more effective you have kind of like the merging of heads and you have like 
the perspectives of the women being emphasized there. And it's sort of that next page that loses me because that's the page with the hyper objectification. And then we have, again, you know, we talked about this right off the top. Daisy mentioned it, but the narration by Rory, you know, mm-hmm. for it to have been Everyone's Rory, favorite character, Rory. <laughs> right. Rachel's abuser, someone who doesn't know them, you know, who is someone who doesn't have perspective on what's going on here. And I, again, <laughs> I know like the Rachel abuser thing, it's just like that, that overlays everything. So like to have his caption boxes explaining this moment of connection between the women when so much of his narration throughout the issue too has been like, I don't understand Rachel. I can't claim to understand what she's going through. I can only imagine what she's going through. And it's almost like Lobdell telling on himself, like, I can't imagine what it would be like being Rachel. Like, God, she's such a mystery. And then it's like he has Rory say things like that throughout the issue. And I'm like, that's great that you know your limitations, but <laughs> hilarious to write that into the story and think that, <laughs> I mean, again, he wasn't thinking about me noticing he was not writing this comic book for me. I understand that. <laughs> I, but, I read um, her file. I, yeah. <laughs> it's Amanda Stefton. She's a she's a stewardess, you see. Because mm-hmm. uh, I read her file. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Daisy, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about these connections between the women in this issue. Like, did you find anything valuable or moving about any of these connections? And I mean, I'm thinking about the Rachel and Kitty scene quite a bit because we didn't talk about it much. But any of these moments that you want to talk about, you're welcome to. Well, the Rachel and Kitty scene uh, is it upsets me because Kitty is explaining uh, survival's guilt to Rachel, mm-hmm, yeah. and which is definitely something that Rachel used to struggle with. Uh, she always wanted to sacrifice herself. She always she felt like her life uh, had no value, and she wanted to to do you know the launch into these big uh, revenge things, killing the Beyonder and killing the whole universe to kill the Beyonder and killing Celine and having. Uh, committing suicide by Wolverine and stuff like that. But since the beginning of Excalibur, she, she's learned that her life has value and she she coped with her survival's guilt. And now it's totally the other way around. Kitty is telling her, oh, you, you want to live because you have survival guilt? No, you should die. It's terrible. <laughs> and then uh, putting some uh, Holocaust reference into that is manipulative. I think it's, well, it's really, really terrible. But still, a, a little bit later, when um, Rachel uh, says a, a goodbye to, to Kitty and she says, like, oh, when I am born, you please, please say hello to me, hello to me as a baby. Uh, I thought that was moving. Uh, I, I really liked it, even if her being born doesn't make any sense uh, and also even if that would make the second of Kitty's girlfriend to come back as a kid thankfully that didn't happen because Jean keeps uh, dying but yeah that was a, a strangely touching moment yeah I I wanted to be mad at that scene too just because of the weirdness of it but I that was probably my favorite moment in the comic I did think that that because you know they have a they have a weird and complicated relationship you you know, I mean, it is what it is, but I did like the signaling that their bond will continue and like the honoring of that, despite so many is- other issues I had with this comic. I did like that moment as well. So then it worked. Okay. Cause I, I, that was the part that I said I, I had a problem with, but like, okay, fine. The, the, the moment works. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. Okay. <laughs> but uh, just, it reminds me too much of the, of the, you know, and we've talked about it before in the future, Rachel and Kurt date and you're like, but you knew her as a baby and that's weird and she you know like you know 
<laughs> no, I know, I know. Again, I'm I'm embracing the weirdness in this one instance, mostly like up cards on the table, mostly because the image of them holding each other and crying with their faces very close to each other is very romantic, <laughs> like divorced from the context. Yeah. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. embrace it on that level because again, grasping at straws here. Yeah, I have a question. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this. Um, the idea of um, leading someone out of the darkness into the light comes out a lot in stories of queer mentorship. I- I'm wondering if you think that was in play or if I'm being way too charitable. You're talking about in the walking through the portal scene? Yeah, specifically yeah. leading someone from the darkness into the light. I don't know. Daisy, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know because I, I was so much so so mad about Kitty convincing Rachel to to commit suicide that I couldn't read it that way. But maybe maybe the you could. Uh, it's a very um, very charitable reading. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, because I mean, I get, I sort of get what you're going to, Andrew. But it's just that, like, what it means when they step through this portal here is just not that, you know. Right. It's like Rachel accepting the necessity. Just come out of, of the closet and die. Die. Yeah. <laughs> closet and die. That's so, the title of our episode. So it's, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> the thing that's weird for me about it is it's like there are three pages missing from the book. <laughs> because Kitty at this point yeah. is saying, like, she's not telling her to die. This is Kitty saying, no, uh, why didn't you trust me? I'm your friend. I'm your family. I'm your girlfriend. Whatever you want to call her, right? But, like, like if you just come to me, we could have, we could work this out together. Now, let's go through the, let's go through this portal and let's, let's find out what, you know, what's been traumatizing you. Let's come to grips with that. And then we're going to go find our friends and we're going to kick some ass and save your life. But then we walk through the portal and it's, no, we're going to die now. Like it's literally yeah. and like Amanda no. says it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what she saw on the other side of the portal. And I don't know what got Rachel from I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared to no, Kurt. I'm going to die because it's the right thing to do. Walking through a door is not enough because Kitty is literally saying no. We're Kitty saying what Kurt is right. You don't have to die is what she's saying. But she does. And she's going to like in a page you know so like what are you doing what um (laughs) what's going on here uh like i don't understand i don't understand how this script worked you know like clearly it's supposed to be just right that oh my god there's no other way we have to you know because because that's what you're doing so it it feels like there's pages missing and and i'm confused i know I felt like that too. I mean, it's sort of um, <laughs> writerly confession. It sort of made me feel a little bit like when you are writing an essay or any other piece of writing and you know there's a rhetorical gesture that doesn't quite work, but you're hoping you kind of distracted them enough with your writerly flourishes, <laughs> flourishes. that people won't notice. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's what happened here. He's like, oh, this is heroic and this is okay. This is helping you get over your survivor guilt. Please don't notice that that's not actually what happens because we all said all these words about it and like you're supposed to feel okay with it but like what <laughs> this is a this is a 1500 word essay and i've got 1400 words written so this is what mm-hmm. <laughs> this yep. is how, mm-hmm. how many it's where we are anyway let's talk about like a couple of other things i don't want to leave rachel i don't want to stop talking about her but um uh we can comment on the introduction of amanda if we would like we're gonna obviously have more of a focus on her in the next issue so i don't want to spend too much time on her here but as we mentioned on the pod before she was originally going to be added to the cast of the book back when Claremont pitched it and obviously that didn't happen and we have had actually a lot of letters published in the letter pages like being like where's Amanda which I understand because she had been Kurt's girlfriend and he kind of just walked out on her 
in like Uncanny 204 and then they just never saw each other again, which was, that was a long time ago at this point in continuity. That was what, like six years ago? Yeah, <laughs> so, no, like, I mean, regular regular people aren't reading on Near it Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like but, she's but been Kurt sort of around a couple yeah. times. Yeah, but yeah. she and Kurt yeah, exactly. haven't reconnected mm-hmm. since then. So, I mean, it is strange. You're like, you don't have a phone? I mean, it's a bit weird. Um, and like, yeah, one of the, God, again, we're going to talk about this more, but like one of the things I do find interesting about the framing of that in the letters column and stuff, like, I mean, there's such a like, this is an incest relationship and it's strong and it's this, that, and like in the fandom today, but like the contextualization of the relationship then was really like, oh, she's his girlfriend. No one said sister. <laughs> I do find that like <laughs> it's almost like people are like wait a second in like the modern fandom but like back then people were just like no she's just yeah. his girlfriend I forgot about the sister thing or like at least were less uncomfortable with it which is good or bad whatever I'm not but still this character was framed differently in this time than I think she's framed in the fandom now and I think that comes across in the letters and I think that comes across in the way the character is kind of referred to even here because like there's some line about you know his surrogate sister or something thing like as though they're kind of trying to fudge it a little bit which you know all of this is on claremont for making it weird but um <laughs> this is we don't not... i don't really want to do a 10 minutes on the yeah. on the insist thing right just, now we'll do it we'll do no, it another yeah, time it's just, I, <laughs> and, yeah i mean maybe it's next it, amanda is not the most incestuous thing claremont ever did <laughs> no this is true <laughs> It's, it's it's i mean yeah i'll make it pleasant because we're not gonna because well, again we're gonna do more with her next time so i'll just say here i like the idea that she wants to call herself day tripper because mm-hmm. it's like uh mm-hmm. it, it's like making fun of uh of kurt's name without like specifically directly <laughs> doing it uh and uh, and i was just like and i and just reading this when it came out i'm just like oh oh really okay that's great like that <laughs> that was uh, okay bravo mr labdell that's funny like i was like all right fine <laughs> that I'll, I'll give you that one so so that that's the that's the moment in this for me i'm just like oh okay he's doing a thing that's a that's kind of funny lashley gives her an entrance too man like i mean you get that we have to flip uh, the comic book sideways to, <laughs> yeah. well, we have to flip the comic book sideways to look at that image which is clearly meant to be like you know put up on a wall as a pinup um, mm-hmm. because he does it that way as a poster but um but it's, yeah. it's a jim lee image though that particular yeah. image like his lastly mm-hmm. style as we mentioned is very distinct but all of a sudden for this two-page fold out he becomes jim lee uh, one thing that bothers me about her is that she keeps telling that she's not a great sorceress she's not as good as her mother and clearly for me she's here as a replacement for rachel uh, she's a new odd girl and uh well, obviously, Britannic is the one taking Rachel's place, but she will be the one uh, taking her place uh, in the in the team, really. And it's like Lobdell is reassuring her, uh, us and reassuring himself that uh, this uh, one female character won't be overpowered. She will be a lot weaker than Rachel and embossed by that yeah yeah it's and that's going to be a through line of the portrayal of amanda that you know she's a sorceress but she's not margali you know she's like a lower level sorceress and you know that's not a bad story in and of itself seeing someone struggling with their limits and like figuring that out and learning but having the specificity of this character replacing rachel and having that framed that way i agree with you daisy it really stood out to me as well it also makes her a weird phone call so like we're 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 to believe that kurt called her to consult on the situation but kurt knows that she's not i mean and she is 
last time we saw her, she couldn't do a clothing spell, right? Like she, like that was like literally in X-Men. She's like, hey, I'll make uniforms for us. And then she ends up bringing them bondage gear on accident. And that's, and that's <laughs> on accident. <laughs> Shadow yeah. King, but yes. Yeah, but but I mean, but that's that's the level of power she's at. So it's odd that like, this is who he calls to help with this life or death situation. Despite the fact that she's his sister or his girlfriend, fine. But like, he knows Doctor Strange. I know because he's called Doctor Strange before in this right. book, you know? So like, you know, Doctor Strange's phone number. And if you need this kind of mystical power, y- y- use it, <laughs> you know? know, you also know Reed Richards and you were just in New York, you know, so you could have stopped there, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's, there's a little um, things like that. Well, we'll have to talk more about how that proceeds. We're going to have a curtain Amanda issue next so um, I want to make sure that we all have time to do some final thoughts and stuff. And I, to be honest, I don't really want to talk about it because we've already gone long and I want to keep this um, episode focused on Rachel. But I did want to note that there is a backup story that, okay, most of us were reading this on like bootleg CBRs because, and justification, this issue is not available on Marvel Unlimited. It's not in any reprints. There's no way to pay for this comic book. So I think you're very justified in getting a bootleg of it. But the bootleg that you will find circulating on sites that may or may not exist does not include the backup story um, which is a backup story by Jim Kruger and Tim Sale called A Demon Went to Church on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So some lovely Tim Sale art in this story Um, I, I just I'm very curious about why it's cut out of the scans of the issue because I actually had not read this story before. Okay, so it's a story where like Kurt saves a girl from a burning building and then he goes to church and asks for forgiveness for being a mutant. And then the priest gives him this speech like, we all have our crosses to bear. Can you forgive me for being a human? And then Kurt smiles and is like, yeah, it's all good now. And like, (laughs) there's that word problematic again. It's like, again, I don't, I feel like the issues with the story are so obvious. And we've talked about it on the podcast before that I don't really want to talk about it much other than to just like mention like... (laughs) When stories about Catholic Nightcrawler foreground his shame about being a mutant, to me, that's like putting Catholic tropes on the character that he had previously resisted in a more productive way. And that's the huge issue I have with kind of going to that well. That can be a story for somebody, you know, but to make it a story for this character, you're not writing the character's religion extending from who he is as a character. You're taking religious tropes and doing those to the character. And I just really don't care for that. But besides all of that, regardless of what character this was like to have the conclusion of the story be like yes being a mutant is a punishment you just have to learn to bear that cross (laughs) oh boy (laughs) that is not a good message for anyone regardless of like what metaphor for otherness you're putting here think about anyone that exists and then like reread that story and it's like oh boy and again i don't think that's what they meant i think that this is actually supposed to seem like a hopeful story of like it is we all you know like this is like we're all coming together in our like shared doubt and i'm like that's really not how it reads to me first rest in peace tim sale who died earlier this year um yes tim sale wonderful artist like yes. his art here is very beautiful yes kruger is a really good writer this is this is very uh, early kruger, in like his comics career very early in his career and this is a is it eight pages i believe and compared to the guy who wrote justice which is a series he did with alan moore and won an eisner for it 
that's like you know a maxi series and he can do complex ideas if he tries to like absorb them this tries to shove eight pages of nothing but pathos into meaningless and it has the problem that i don't like with the x-men metaphor which is you're trying to do the x-men metaphor is a metaphor for all otherness it's you know get being a mutant is being a racial minority it's also being a sexual minority it's also being a religious minority and let's just roll them all together and it kind of puts Kurt's Catholicism and his mutant otherness together. And like, this is the cross you bear. Like, I, it's trying to do too much and therefore not doing any of it well. It becomes really, really awkward. It's like, uh, oh, well, I was, forgive me. I didn't mean to see you that way because we're all just human. And, and I get the message. I get what he's going for. You can't do that in eight pages when four of them are really about this rescue and stuff. It, it was so much. It was, it was it was a lot <laughs> i just i just couldn't it just gave me like hives like this is your cross i mean it's just like imagine a priest just telling me that as a woman like oh i am confessing for like being the sin of being a woman and then he's like oh well being a woman is just your cross to bear and you're like you're right i feel so much better <laughs> like, just, what are you talking about which arguably can be the message of christianity in some interpretations sure sure you, you need you need more than eight pages for that this is not a well, this and, is not but a I mean, story issue <laughs> That could be the message if this is going to be a chick tract. I don't think that should be the message in an X-Men comic, which is about yeah. embracing your difference and otherness. It's an upsetting yeah. message in that context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, like Daisy, I tried to send you images from this story, and I don't know that they sent properly. Uh, no, no, but uh, I got it. I found it. So, so some uh, some CBS. Uh, okay, it. perfect. If you have any yeah. thoughts about it, you're welcome. I, I'm just uh, yeah. I just enjoy the the. Uh, so much i agree with everything you said but after you know 35 pages of uh ken Ratley, <laughs> who really has gotten a lot better suddenly you get team cell and you're like oh you still have a lot of work yeah. to do ken the, the use of shadow and lightning lightning is so great so even the color is much better and he gives kurt this like really cool x-men scarf i love the scarf i can say that is good about the story great <laughs> scarf would wear in real life in the visual metaphor that it's trying to be this the scarf is the cross to bear like because x's are mm -hmm. crosses. I, I mean I, I, it's trying this is trying to do some really artistic interesting things it's just not there for for Kruger or for sales not quite where it wants to be well and I just you know for Kurt to think that his mutantness is a cross to bear as an adult when that's the complete inversion of what his story has always been just why why are we doing this anyway let's do some final thoughts about the main story that we had here um I'll give everybody a chance to do something um Andrew something you want to say about this issue that we didn't get a chance I can be about the Kurt story if you want to or about the main story anything that you would like go ahead I don't know. I, I just think looking ahead, I, I think the arrival of Amanda signals some interesting things in terms of Excalibur's commitment to exploring mysticism once again, um, which I don't hate. I, I, I've always kind of liked that component of Excalibur. I think the lighter tone is well suited to a more magical environment, but that's not where they are now. So the timing is off. I also think yeah. her arrival this close after Cerise's departure kind of diminishes that a little bit. And the big obvious one, just that, um, uh, oh, wow, Far Farron is more redundant than he was previously as soon as Amanda Sefton yeah. shows up. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was he's comatose. Off panel, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, is he still comatose? Is he still at the yeah. waterfall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
poor Baron. Comas are not Megan funny. Left. They're not funny in reality, but in this comic book. Megan got better and left weirdly. and left this child yeah. under a waterfall. <laughs> It would be funny if Megan functionally killed him. Oh my god. Well, you know, I don't know if that would make me feel better about the other stuff in this issue, but still. <laughs> All right. Mav, final thoughts about this one. Okay. Um, so last issue ended on a cliffhanger of like we've uh, tranquilized Megan and we're in the middle of this fight and Rachel's like you jumped in and had no right not at all and then we're just in a com- oh, entirely yeah, different didn't. chronal shift this issue <laughs> yeah. which is weird and it's like oh yeah I went to mom and dad's wedding it's great and I'm like so that was weird to start with it was jarring given that I just read you know the month before this big cliffhanger and then coming back to Rachel smiling and flying and I'm like oh wow okay that's a that's a big shift and then then i turn the page to page two and she's you know now kurt and kurt and kitty are in this i guess moira has her own quinjet so you know yay um but like they're in the quinjet and i find out that rachel has dragged the quinjet from westchester county new york to murr island which we don't know exactly where in scotland it is but you know scotland's not that big country so she's dragged it there in seven minutes just under seven minutes and i did the math that's mach 35 <laughs> that, that, that is they're dead rachel yeah. killed kitty and kurt in this book like wh- what what mach 30 it's twenty seven thousand twenty seven thousand five hundred miles per hour is how fast that they have would have had to have gone to make that trip that fast the space shuttle used to orbit the world at seventeen thousand miles an hour <laughs> Like, this is really, really ridiculously fast. And I'm like, oh, okay. I I, I guess we just want to establish how powerful she is one last time before we kill her. Sure. But it it was just an odd statement to make because it doesn't make me feel like they're powerful. It just makes me feel like she killed her friends. (laughs) So that was my that was the thing that stuck out to me on this read. I'm just like, oh, what from Westchester to Murray Island in just under seven minutes. I'm like, that does sound too fast. You're right, Kitty. (laughs) So then I I immediately stopped reading this through and went and started doing math to figure out to figure it out. And I was like, what? And then I was like, well, that's going to be my final thought, because I wonder Mm -hmm. if this bothers anybody else. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's Mach 35. Well, yeah, I mean, mine mine was related to that, too. Just like the framing of Rachel as joyful in that opening scene. And it's like she's so powerful. But it's like we have to undercut that with I mean, letting the ship almost fall on Rory is funny. But like, (laughs) that's a really unconscionable, dangerous thing to do. And then she does let the ship fall on the cliff and she's like well i hope warrior can fix that and i'm like yeah you just caused like a billion dollars of property damage i mean like it's it's funny i guess but like that's sort of well, i don't know yeah yeah like, like if someone scratches know. my car i get upset you know yeah i mean it's just there can be this thing and i do find it an issue in 90s x-men comics where just for the sake of emphasizing their power and how unique and special they are and everything there are a lot of moments like that where they just like wreck a whole city block and they're like let's go get breakfast (laughs) i mean (laughs) i very much push against that reading of superheroes as fascist in the sense that i don't think they have to be but in instances like this uh yeah not coming across great (laughs) so daisy do you have any final thoughts about this one i just i don't want to leave this conversation of rachel i would like to talk to you for 10 more hours because i want to keep talking about her but any final thoughts you have to wrap up yeah actually i'm going to talk about britannic because everyone wants to talk about 
I've written. <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to talk about his, uh, his crotch, which is really, really <laughs> flat. <laughs> and uh, everything is bulging with him. He's got these big muscles and everything. And his crotch is really, really just so flat. And it's something Lashley does that a lot of superior artists in the 90s do. It's big muscles and a really flat crotch. And Lashley is like really at the top of this uh, particular game and I find it's it's really uh, interesting because it's something like you know it's a book for 12 year old heterosexual kids boys and you know um, sexy women's women are okay but a man with a, a with a bulge uh, is not so that's just fascinating for me it's just it's all about power but not sex because sex is icky you can look at boobs but you don't want <laughs> to look at you know uh, other boys uh, junk yeah absolutely and you know like oh boy i maybe i'll get a chance to ask him someday i almost wonder whether lashley got a note about it because it's changed the way he's rendered it like from some previous issues to this one like he did some weird bulges in previous issues but he was kind of drawing that a little bit and just like the deliberateness of like the shaded out because he does that to everybody's crotch in this entire issue like men and women and like next issue with nightcrawler it will become very prevalent it will be very obvious that there are no penises in in this issue (laughs) starting with the cover of next issue it's it is it's something i'm aware of so yeah it's just funny like it does make me wonder if you got a note about it like Mm -hmm. you need to stop and i'm like Mm. i wish i kind of knew but i yeah definitely going to talk more about britannic and yeah the presence and absence of penises in comics obviously something that interests me a lot but yeah i mean you're obviously right on on track with like you know (laughs) these male bodies are supposed to be ego ideals not objects right and though they can be objectified there are certain steps that the comics take to to frustrate that and then that's why so like fun and interesting to look at like Patrick Filion's art or something and like where he does like the male superhero costumes like a version of you know women's superhero costumes with the cutouts and like (laughs) emphasizing like nipples and butts and penises and everything because like that would be the equivalent and that's not really what we get here did you have other final thoughts Daisy no no I think that's it I want to hand on this crutch What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now. More than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last. To be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me. So we will wrap things up there. As I just keep saying, I just, I don't, I don't want to leave. I don't. But um, we have to. So, Daisy, thank you so dearly for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what writing or projects or anything else causes would you like them to check out? Go, go right ahead. If uh, your listeners uh, can read French, uh, they can uh, find me by Googling my name and 
So we'll find me on Twitter. They may even find my book, uh, which is called uh, On ne n'est pas mec. Uh, I wanted to say it uh, so that pe French uh, people could understand it. <laughs> yes, thank you. And um, well, uh, I don't, um, I'd hope someday to have it uh, translated in English, but that's not, uh, that's not uh, really uh, something that's happening uh, for now. So you will have to learn French to read me. <laughs> like yeah I, we talked about this briefly when maxime was on the pod but like andrew and i are canadian so we've had many years of french education i had to pass a french translation test for my phd um so none I. of which included pronunciation or speaking and i am just a nightmare and it's I had like to pass yeah. a french translation test that where it was specifically my test was can you translate this article about comic books and oh yeah i did yeah that was that was my test is like well this is what you're gonna have to be able to do and i was like i was able to do it and i I probably can't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's shameful. Someday, someday really I will sad, improve. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you so much again, Daisy, for, for putting up with our terrible translation. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. Next, we are heading into Excalibur number 76, Dog Years, in which the Sardos clan reunite in Germany and everything is wine and roses, as it always is when the Sardos clan reunites in Germany. Um, it should be a fun one. <laughs> In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, or review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pictures of the guest or a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another time and space-spanning conversation. Thank you, Daisy, for a day tripping with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Mm -hmm.